You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Fred Glass, a man who has done so much for so many, not only in Bloomington when he was athletic director for Indiana University and a vice president, but also his civic engagement is second to none. We're very happy to have you on, Fred. Thank you. Robert, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. The only thing that'd be better is if we were doing a remote from the ace. So maybe, maybe if I could if we reprise this, we could we could sneak that in. Well, I'm happy to do that because now they're open again. And uh, one of your good friends, Kathy Davis, came on the podcast and we recorded at the ace. Awesome. That's great. Good. It's, it's funny as I read the promo. People smile really big when I mentioned McAllister machinery because they loved PE and um, you knew PE very well, obviously PE McAllister. And they smile really big when I mentioned the McGinley's golden ace in you've done so much in your career. Obviously being a lawyer has been a huge asset to your career. I would assume uh, given the success you've had, what made, we're going to jump right into this, and, and the reason we're jumping right into this is because my son is a sophomore. He just finished his sophomore year at Purdue. Sorry, Fred. Sorry. And he wants to be an attorney. And so what do you say to young attorneys, to people who want the law as a profession? So um, I say that if your um, vision is to start at the bottom rung of a gigantic law firm and kind of work your way up and, and, and be there forever, then um, I, I, I wonder if that's what you really want to do with your life. And that's like somebody who's been at a, two different gigantic law firms. It's been great for me, but it wasn't a career defining or, or consuming activity. But I'm always very encouraging if people want to go to law school because it might sound trite, but I really think it... Um, one teaches you a special way to think. Lawyers are very adept at cutting through the chaff to get to the wheat, um, separating the irrelevant from the relevant. Um, and I took that super for granted when I was working with lawyers all the time in the governor's office or at Baker and Daniels. But one of the things that I you I really noticed was it's a different deal when you're working with a lot of people that aren't lawyers. That may sound smug. I don't mean for it to be, but I think I think lawyers have a special training, a special way of thinking that it's really valuable. And then I think it's a distinguishing characteristic. 
it's it's a distinguishing feature if you're going to go into politics or sports or entertainment or whatever. So, you know, I would be encouraging for your son to, to go there. I think my dad was a law school dropout. Um, he always described it as a license, like a plumber or an electrician, which I actually embraced, you know, because it, it's something you own. Nobody can take it away from you. And I think part of the reason I've been willing to take risks in my career is I always knew I could fall back on my license. You know, I could I could put it up on Shadeland Avenue and chase ambulances and 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 you know scratch out a living, and it was and it was sort of freeing. So, well, um, fortunately, there are a lot of ambulances on Shadeland on the east side yeah. on Shadeland <laughs> Avenue. Uh, yeah. Do you get the sense it's a validator? Like, don't try to put me in the corner. I'm an attorney, kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I you know, it's a, it's a well-earned credential, you know, that I think that, that I think, um, you know, helps you in a lot of different areas and, and opens some doors that, that may not otherwise have been open, distinguishes you from people that fairly or not, you know, it gives you a little bit of a leg up. So I would be encouraging to him. I've got three sons. One's a lawyer now. One just finished his first year at McKinney and one is enrolling in the fall at Mauer. So I guess I voted with my feet on this in terms of giving advice. <laughs> My good friend, someone you know, uh, the brilliant Jennifer Wagner, got a law degree into law school. And I'm like, why are you going to law school? She goes, because so lawyers can't tell me I'm not a lawyer. That's a pretty good reason, actually. Yeah. Nobody's better at messaging than Jennifer Wagner. Yeah. Succinct yeah, and to right. the point. Do you Did you have sort of a, a mentor, a legal mentor? I know that you uh, worked for Judge S.U. Dillon, but were there others as well? Yeah, I, I didn't growing up. So I, there were a lot of people in my law school class that had uncles or moms or grandfathers that were lawyers. And, and, and I felt a little bit behind the curve on that. But I was very fortunate to have starting with Judge Dillon, um, you know, Bryce Bennett at, at Riley Bennett Agloff mm-hmm. was a mentor. Lots of mentors at um, Baker and Daniels. Charlie Richardson was a big mentor uh, for me. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I've been the beneficiary of, of, of that for sure. Do you have a favorite legal movie? Probably the paper chase. Yeah. I would say the, the original paper chase. Oh, John Houseman, the movie was early, early to mid seventies. Yeah, exactly. Timothy bottoms. It's really corny when you look back on it, but I thought it was so cool at the time. Um, and encourage my, my boys to watch it. I think they've gotten a kick out of it. It, it captures law school in a certain way. That's, that's fairly accurate. You are now at Taft. You had mentioned you had spent several years, uh, 15 years at Baker and Daniels. There are some rock stars at Taft, some of whom are mutual friends of ours, whether that's Lacey Johnson or Kyle Hupfer or, or the list, Mark Shublack, John Hammond, the list goes on and on, who are, who are our attorneys. Uh, how fun and how much does it mean to you to be at a firm where there's that much, not just star power, because that's not that's not a wrong term to use here in this city and state, but that much brain power and that much respect. Well, it's, it's one of the reasons I originally came here, and that was even before those guys arrived on the scene. You know, I mean, the the, the quality of uh, lawyers here were already great, and when you add talent like that, it's very reassuring. When guys like John Hammond and and uh, the other folks you mentioned choose to come here. That's really reaffirming in terms of the decision. I, I actually came to Taft um, because of my longtime friend, Mickey Terrell, who's probably a guy that you may not know and your listeners may not know. He's a very prominent employment lawyer 
in the city and state. He and I were law school classmates, uh, roommates my first year at school. And we had talked way early in our career. Would it be cool if our final chapter was sort of together? So so I came here in great part because of Mickey. But also, you know, Taft's a little bit the, uh, the, the new kid on the block compared to, you know, Fagery and Ice and, and um, uh, Barnes and some others. So it's a real strong national firm, but a little bit newer in this market. I, I thought it'd be fun to, to be with the up and coming guys. How much fun do you get? How much joy do you get when you practice law as opposed to lobbying or being you know, law firm, as you mentioned earlier, can do so many things. And there's some people like our previous guest, uh, Jim Voiles, just loves the courtroom uh, right. and obviously has done very, very well in the courtroom. There's lots of different paths to take. Which path did you choose and how has that made your career better? So um, I don't want to go down a bunch of rabbit trails, but it, it's interesting you ask that question because I was just talking about it. With, I had lunch with Bart Peterson yesterday, um, and I was talking about his experience being on your show, and I was going to be on your show, and he loved it. But um, when I left the governor's office and went to Baker and Daniels, I sort of had to make a decision of what I wanted to do, and I was very um, uh, seduced into thinking, you know, I need to get an expertise, man, because I, I don't have, you know, I'm coming out of the governor's office. I've done a lot of different things. I was a lawyer, yeah, but I. I'd been a long time since I litigated. And so I thought, you know, I really need to, to get some sort of technical skill that I can sell internally and externally and be a real lawyer. But I didn't really want to be a real lawyer. I wanted to be a kind of a trusted advisor, uh, an adjunct member of the executive team of different organizations, a civic leader, mm-hmm. you know, and do, do a, a broader, uh, less defined uh, role. And Bart and I were going to, um, a Green Bay Packer game. We went to Green Bay every year because uh, we were pre-Colt Packer fans. And I was telling him this. I'm like, you know, man, I think I'm going to try to figure out how to be a technical lawyer. And he goes, don't do that, man. That's like a commodity. With all due respect to the awesome technical lawyers out there, he goes, do, follow your heart. You know, do the civic stuff. Do the non-billable stuff. Build a practice. Be an adjunct member of the team. Even if it feels kind of uncomfortable that it's not a super technical expertise area. And that's what I did. You know, I, I tried to build a practice where I was really, for lack of a better term, a trusted advisor to business leaders and was fortunately able to build you know, a pretty robust practice at Baker Daniels before I left there to go to IU. And that's what I'm looking to replicate now, Robert, is really a practice that's, that's a general business practice where hopefully I'm like a, a, in some ways as much a business consultant as I am a lawyer. I guess we should mention that Bart Peterson is an attorney. I believe went to the University of Michigan. Is that correct for his law? Exactly right. And he was at Ice Mill for several years. Very successful there. Awesome firm. Did have an area of expertise, but um, so he he knew he knew what he was talking about and sort of convinced me to to walk the plank a little and, and try something different. You mentioned before we started the recording that you're a member of the Brebuff Mafia, which is probably a little different than the East Side Mafia that I'm a member of. But that's a whole nother podcast. How did Brebuff, the Jesuit education, shape your intellect? And when did you get turned on by politics? Well, I will tell you, I have a passing knowledge of the, of the, of the East Side Mafia. I married a girl from Arlington High School, and, and uh, some of my best friends, as they say, are East Siders. So, uh, Denny Sutherland being one of them, I'm guessing? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. He's a golden <laughs> knight as well, um, as is Lacey Johnson and others. But um, Rick, Rick Fusen. Rick, yeah, exactly. Benita yeah. Moore, as I recall. 
exactly. It was kind of the place to be. Um, um, but, but yeah, I, I, my dad went to cathedral, um, but he went to Marquette university on the GI bill, a Jesuit school. And he became very, um, much a believer in the Jesuits. And so he sent me to this new school, you know, for buff Jesuit, um, and wanted me to go there and, and not so much the time, but over the years, that Ignatian philosophy and Jesuit approach, the Jesuit way of proceeding, as they say, it's been very, very impactful to me. I was the first alumnus to chair the board of trustees at Burbuff, which was a real uh, honor. And not so much, Robert, in the theological sense. It's not a, it's not a religious thing for me, really. It's, 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 it's their incredible approach to leadership and, and, um, and, and just a way of, of living. So, um, it's, it's been very impactful for me. I use a lot of things I learned from the Jesuits at, uh, IU and in other roles and, and it's a tight knit group. I mean, it's, you know, I know you worked for Murray Clark when he was state chair, good friend from Burbuff, you know, and, you know, the list kind of goes on and on about, um, folks from Burbuff and we, we tend to stick together and, 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 you know, value our common experiences there. Was it at Burbuff that you became interested in politics and how did you and i asked mayor peterson this question i can't remember his answer but i remember asking him the question of what landed you on the on the democrat side of the aisle yeah i think um my my dad liked to say that i was a prenatal democrat and and like a lot of us probably the single biggest thing that forges our um political affiliation is our parents bart may be the exception to that i was just parents are, <laughs> I was <kidding. laughs> rock ribbed Republicans. Um, but, uh, when I was five years old, my mom ran for precinct committee woman against the slate. It was the young Turks at the time. Um, uh, and she, and she went to try to get Andy Jacobs, uh, elected. And she took me around to the houses mostly, you know, and you probably, I don't know if you've done this before. I've done this with my own kids. When you're trying to get signatures, you take your little kids along because they tend to get the doors opened a little better. I think my mom was doing that with me. So I've literally been, you know, walking the precinct since I was five and stuffing envelopes and getting involved in campaigns. And I just loved it, man. I wrote LBJ letters when I was a kid. My mom took me down to the circle to see LBJ, took me to the airport to see JFK. Um, I was a kid um, on the playground at St. Thomas Aquinas School where I went at 46 in Illinois in 1968. I was nine years old and there was all this hubbub that occurred. And to make a long story short, Bobby Kennedy was here for that primary and he saw these Catholic kids playing on the playground and he stopped the motorcade and weighed in. I got to shake Bobby Kennedy's hand, you know, a few weeks before he was assassinated. So um, it's just been in my blood really, really from my parents and they were you know, Democrats and union members and all that, all that stuff. And you grew up at a, in a pretty heady time. Vietnam, Nixon, assassinations, Watergate, were those factors as well, along, along with your parents? I mean, McGovern's run in 72 was certainly enlightening to some. Uh, we had Terry Curry on, and he talked about uh, being clean for Gene, and those were the, the people in the late 60s, 1968, when Gene McCarthy was running for president who shaved their beards and mustaches so they could be clean for Gene. Right. Uh, do you remember those times, and, and how much – Obviously, you do. You were just talking about it, but how much did it affect you, the tumultuous years between, say, sixty-seven and seventy-four? Yeah, Robert, I think it's a good insight. I think they were hugely impactful, and given my my parents' activity, 
you know, in politics and the Democratic Party, I, I probably would have maybe had some interest anyway, but I was just fascinated by what was going on. Um, I remember that summer sitting there watching every minute of the Watergate hearings with my mom, um, knowing who Sam Irvin was and, and uh, Dash and Baker and, and, and the whole story coming out. And, and, and I remember the, um, I remember very specifically, this is weird, but there was a uh, article in the Indianapolis star about the credibility gap and how Johnson mm-hmm. Was um, you know lying, and 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 now it seems like we all think they lie all the time, but especially my age and also the age of the country, you just didn't think your leaders were lying, you know. And they were saying that Johnson was lying. I'm like, how can the president, you know, lie and do bad things? And I asked my dad, and he said, well, you know, power does funny things to people, and it does funny things to people around them that they that they don't want to tell the emperor that he has no clothes, essentially. And I remember vowing to myself as like a nine-year-old, you know, I'm, if I ever get a chance to be that, be there, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie to who I work for. And that was weird because then I had a chance later on to work closely with some political leaders. And, and, and I, and I just remember that vow that I'm just going to tell them what I think. And, and, and you probably had this experience in the short run. You sometimes you're a shot messenger because they're like, what? No, but, but then when they know you're going to tell them the truth or challenge them, then you become a trusted advisor, you know? And so when I was chief of staff, I always told people when I worked for Evan Bayh, you got to tell him when you think he's wrong and you guys are going to get jumped and he's going to, he's a smart guy and he's going to cross-examine you, but, but ultimately he'll value your opinion more. And so those, those were very formative times for me, I guess. Did the, put the assassinations you know those tragedies aside but so much of of what happened just for to focus on one second on watergate was about it was a very legal crisis laws being broken hearings uh, people being sentenced to to jail and and significant sentences by maximum john sirica because he knew that there was a story that wasn't being told and he served God, i forget what he sentenced to Howard Hunt to like 35 years for this, you know, third rate burglary as the president of the United States called it, I think. Uh, but so much about that crisis was rooted in the law. You had whether it was Sam Irvin and, and, and John Dean and all and Nixon was an attorney. He was a law school grad, went to Duke. Uh, did that, did that stick in your mind that the law in ultimately the law was preserved? It won out over people, over power. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I had those deep of insights, you know, but but maybe a little bit by osmosis. I mean, the heroes of that were lawyers, you know, yeah. Irvin and Baker and all those guys. And then most of the ones that went to jail were lawyers, right? So it was sort of a mixed bag. You, <laughs> you know, mean like I the attorney John general? Dean, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I thought John Dean, you know, so many, he was a rat. To me, he was like this hero kind of person. Um, but I think I was mostly influenced by, by my dad and him dropping out of law school and him, you know, his father had a sixth grade education, was active in the IBW, was very proud of being an electrician. My father was an electrician. And this whole idea that it was this trade and it was this sort of sacred monopoly of access to justice sort of captivated my imagination. So I, I think a lot of it was almost like unfinished business with my dad. He dropped out. And I thought it'd be cool to, to, to make it through, you know. 
If you were Gerald Ford, would you have pardoned Richard Nixon? Um, if I was young Fred Glass in 1974, I would not have because uh, I'd want the pound of flesh and, and, and all that. <laughs> but and, and I was mad at Ford for doing it. And I thought it was probably a deal and all that. But but the but the, you know, the 62 year old Fred Glass thinks it was the absolute right thing to do. The long national nightmare needed to be over. And, uh, you know, I thought like a lot of leaders, right. I think, I think Ford's contributions and strength is only becoming more clear as, as, as history moves on, at least for me. So, so I didn't like it at the time, but in retrospect, I think it was the right thing to do. Donald Rumsfeld wrote a really good book on that really good book on Ford, but he, he tackles that, that Ford Mm -hmm. knew that it was going to be a punch to his political gut, but it was the right thing to do. You matriculated to Indiana University in the 1970s, graduating in 1981. How fun was that? It was awesome, man. So when I was a junior at Burbuff, my best friend and I, Brian Brawsey, went down to visit his older brother, Stu Brawsey, who was a freshman at McNutt, and, um, which is a very fun dormitory to this day. And I had like, it was like a movie, you know, that weekend at McNutt. And I'm like, this is where I'm going. I'm all in. And then I graduated in 77, went down there as a freshman. And that's just when Animal House came out. I remember I went to the Indiana Theater, watched Animal House, went next door to the Trojan Horse and had a gyro. And I'm like, this college thing is going to be right on, you know? And so I had a great, great time um, at IU. We won a national championship in 81, which was great fun. And, and, uh, and so it, it was a great experience. Did you ever consider going someplace else? I applied to go to Marquette and got in. Um, but financially it just, it didn't, it wasn't going to work. So went to IU never regretted that. How close was Animal House, the movie, to the Fred Glass, Bloomington, Indiana University experience? And are you Otter or are you Bluto, Flounder? All right. Um, Well, those are very incriminating questions. (laughs) I I, I would say that um, I wasn't, of course, the crazy hyperbole, but but I, I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun in school. I was probably closer to uh, is was Otter. We see the Tim Matheson um, cucumber uh, <laughs> bean wormers. Why? Yeah, I wasn't that. I aspired to be that, but I was not that. I was not a much of a ladies' man um, down there. But had a great, great time, and and um, you know, got you're my kidding, you're kidding me, right? What do you? You're, what do you got? A full head of hair? You're six foot four. You're handsome. You're not a ladies' man down there. No rap. Oh, well, that's, that's different. That's yeah. completely different. No confidence, no rap. <laughs> you were also down there when they filmed Breaking Away. What was. was that experience like? Did you see them filming the movie? It's a brilliant movie. doesn't get enough credit, quite frankly. Yeah, yeah it was awesome. I actually uh, did. They, had a, they asked a bunch of people to come into uh, the 10th Street Stadium to be in the crowd for some of the um, bike scenes. And so I went over there for an afternoon and, and, uh, and did that. But I think I ended up on the cutting room floor. I don't, I don't see myself in it anywhere. Do you remember the, but you remember the movie being filmed? I mean, there weren't necessarily oh, yeah. stars there. I mean, they weren't stars at the time, most likely, right. but 
was it a big deal on campus? I mean, you know, I mean, Animal House and had come out and movies being filmed on college campuses. I'm sure it was a, something there was a lot of buzz about. Yeah, no, it was a big, it was a big deal. And you'd see it going on around and, and uh, yeah. So yeah, it was a big deal. I love that movie. It's a great movie. Is it weird to look at, watch a movie and go, I was there like this is that captured exactly what it was like. Oh yeah, no, it's really fun. Yeah. Especially the Bloomington. I thought it caught the Bloomington vibe well with the quarries and the, and the town and, and, and all that stuff. And, and then, and then now it's such an era piece, right? Cause you look back yeah. there and I got those short, short, all that stuff we wore, you know, white socks up to our knees and short gym shorts and long hair and, we thought that was really cool. And now it looks, you know, kind of dorky, but um, it's, it's fun to watch. My son and I watched Argo last night, not for the first time, but we watched it. And it's such a time capsule with the avocado phones and the cigarettes and the ashtrays everywhere. And the small little TVs that, you know, that you had to get up to actually change the channel. Right. It's amazing how movies can do that. Um, let me ask you the toughest question. I think I'll ask you during the podcast, All which right. movie is better? Breaking Away or Hoosiers? Um, that is a tough one. I, you know, I got to go with Hoosiers. I mean, it's just such a fundamental, you know, Indiana experience. My mom grew up in Tipton County. And um, that opening scene where they're just showing the, the, uh, the winter road and the no leaves on the trees and 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 they just really captured, I think, kind of the essence of 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 that. And so I love them both, but I'd probably have to go with Hoosiers. Did you get to be pretty close to any of the players in 1981? IU won the national championship. We've had Ray Tolbert, big play Ray on the Leaders and Legends podcast. He was really fun to talk to, had an amazing career and was probably my favorite player on that team. I can remember this. I was born in 67. I can remember the 76 team. Obviously, can remember 81 much better. Reagan is shot on March 30th, 81. IU is supposed to play North Carolina. Is it going to be postponed? They eventually played it, and I think IU won by 12. Uh, did you get to know Ray Tolbert, Landon Turner, Isaiah Thomas, Jim Thomas, Randy Whitman, Ted Kitchell, any of them? In college, no. Um one of the benefits of being AD was I got to connect with them and, you know, several of them were my classmates, Ray Tolbert and I were classmates. I actually have gotten to be pretty close to uh, Landon Turner and, and um, know the other guys, but Landon and I formed a pretty strong friendship. My claim to fame, Robert was, um, well, starting my freshman year at McNutt, we had this party on a little five weekend. Um, we call it the Ponderosa. We dress up like Ponderosa characters and, and it just it kind of grew. So by the time I was a senior, it was this huge party at this house I lived in at 505 East 8th Street. And I'm sitting there drinking some beer and Randy Whitman walks up. And I was like, and he was like my favorite player, man, you know, tough West Side guy, you know. Ben Davis, that's player. right. And, um, and he was at my party. So I was like, I've, I've made it. You know, I can not only graduate, I could die a happy person because, you know, Randy Whitman's at my party. So that, that was my brush with greatness down there. And that was about as close as it got. Did you get to know or hang out or be in class with Isaiah Thomas? I mean, it, people today don't understand and deservedly so, right? Like we get it. How gigantic of a star Isaiah Thomas was, especially his sophomore year at IU 
when he led them to the national championship. Yeah, no, he was, he was huge. Um, I, you know, I didn't get to know him. I had, I had a couple of classes with Ray Tolbert, so I had sort of a nodding acquaintance with him, but I was not cool enough to know any of the players. My closest thing was, you know, Randy Whitman came to my party. He didn't know me, but he knew there was a lot of barbecue and beer and that seemed sufficient to uh, get him to come. When you were athletic director at Indiana university, did you spend much time visiting your old haunts, driving past or walking past the house, the address that you just mentioned, or just walking through McNutt, like, ah, what the hell? Let me see what's going on in my old room or anything like that. That sort of nostalgia hits you from time to time. It did, you know, and then when my own kids would be on campus and they would be going to some of the places I went to and, and all that, I sort of lived vicariously uh, through them. Um, you know, early on, Barb and I, because my wife and I met each other down there, Bloom was a big part of our uh, life and, and uh, meeting at IU. You know, we'd go to some of the places we used to go and, you know, people would come up and like have shots with me and take pictures of me at like Kilroy's and stuff. I'm just like, this is not cool. I can't really do that anymore. So our go-to place was a uh, bear's place at third and Jordan, which was awesome because all these music students and nobody really knew or cared anything about sports. And so after our games kind of win or lose, we'd go there and have a few drinks and you know, everybody would leave me alone because sports wasn't really their thing. You are listening to leaders and legends, a podcast for, Presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Fred Glass, former president of the Capital Improvement Board, and we're going to get to that shortly. Former vice president at Indiana University and athletic director, and maybe best known as a good friend of Murray Clark. For sure. Do you have a particular leader or letter, leader or legend from Indiana whom you admire? Um, it really, it'd really be Herman Wells. Uh, and uh, some of your listeners will know who that is. Maybe some of the Purdue folks uh, may not. But um, as you know, Robert, he was um, the president from like the mid 30s to the mid 60s and really led IU from being sort of a backwater, you know, regional kind of college to a true, inter truly internationally recognized, outstanding university. Um, and I think he was, he was a master politician. You know, a great leader, um, and I've read about everything I can about him and really tried to emulate his leadership style when I became athletic director because I think there were some real similarities in terms of where the university was when he started as president and where he wanted to take it and where the athletic department was when I became AD and where I wanted to take it and similar constraints in terms of resources and, and so forth. So um, Herman Wells is a real hero for me. Way before you get to IU, and we'll talk about that a little bit more towards the end of the podcast. You started after law school or as part of your education, becoming more involved in politics. In 1988, 
Evan Bayh, I don't think it was shocking that he won, but I would clearly call it an upset, mm-hmm. becomes governor. Much like when Greg Ballard became mayor, which was shocking, quite frankly, it changed my life. How did Evan Bayh's election to governor in 1988 change your life, shape your life? Well, it, it, it clearly did, um, and I'll always be grateful for that. I mean, just real real briefly, um, when I was a junior at IU, uh, I applied for and got an internship with, with Evan's dad, Birch Bayh, on the Subcommittee on the Constitution in D.C., which really everything I've done since goes back to that in terms of having an opportunity to see it government up close and kind of takes the magic out of it, like – because I always thought there was this magical thing that mere mortals <laughs> couldn't figure out. And when you get a front row seat, you go, I, you know, I could do that. And so it helped me substantively, you know, understand government more, but also um, just helped me get connected with, with the by people. And so when Evan came back to run for secretary of state, I was connected in through the group I met when I was um, in, uh, in, in uh, my internship. And then I, clerked for Judge Dillon and being connected with Birch didn't hurt with that. And, and my wife and I shared it. She scheduled Susan for most of the secretary of state and uh, gubernatorial campaigns. So I had a little bit of a ramp up, but the big change was it went from being a hobby, you know, to being what I, what I did. Um, and I jumped in and joined the senior staff and thought I'd do it a couple of years. I ended up doing it five plus ended up being chief of staff. Um, and, just, you know, as a young person, the governor was 32 when he got elected. So I was 29, which seems crazy now, but at the, at the, at the time seemed pretty normal. And I just had a disproportionate um, set of opportunities in a big, gigantic organization called state government, uh, learning from a guy I had a lot of respect for and taught me a lot, you know, about leadership. Um, and then, uh, was Bart with my deputy chief of staff succeeded me as chief of staff. We became close friends. So when he was elected mayor, he wanted me to be involved in the administration and, you know, had some great opportunities there. So on a number of levels, like your experience, it was really life changing for me. And we should offer our condolences at the loss of your friend, Susan by and to governor by who we'd love to talk to when the time is right. We'd be a, he'd be a terrific podcast guest, but she was a very kind lady. I only met her a couple of times and she couldn't have been nicer. Good. Good. Yeah. No, she was terrific. It's uh, it was an awful, awful thing. And, and um, really appreciate your kind words. Well, I remember my mother crying when Marvella by died about 40, 50 years ago, 45 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And we didn't, we, we net, it didn't matter how we voted. We did not speak ill of Birch Bayh. I mean, he was, and we did a podcast about the career of Birch Bayh, Nancy Pappas, and had um, uh, Louis Mayhern and Bob Blameyer. And it yeah. was a terrific group of people. And, you know, I just was old enough to have the frame of reference. I remember when he lost in 80, but I mean, of how important he was. I speak a lot on this podcast. I ask people about trees. There's coaching trees, whether it's Knight and Shashevsky and everybody else or Dean Smith and Roy Williams and all these permutations. But there are political trees, whether that's the buys or Daniels or 
Kernan, certainly Peterson. The list goes on and on, right? Luger's tree. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah, that's probably the that's probably the redwood. I would right. yeah. think. Exactly. Uh, how how much fun do you have? How much joy do you take in being a part of the extended Birch slash Evan by political family? Yeah, that's a great observation, um, and I am very very proud of it. Um, I've been a great beneficiary of it. Um, it. It makes me a great respecter of other trees. You know, like we're, the Luger tree is amazing, and you know all that spawn and, and, and in a way the Daniels tree is like a sapling from the Luger tree because he's really a Luger guy, but now has his own tree because of all that you know he's done and and um, had nut. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to say a name and Chris Spangle, the podcast engineer, is nodding his head and we can't see him. One of our great interviews that we did is with David Frick, deputy mayor for Bill Hudnut. David Frick is the most underrated, not underappreciated, but underrated figure in modern Indianapolis. I I totally endorse that. I I, David is uh, has been a mentor for me. We were at Baker Daniels together. It was always very, very good to me. We had the odd situation uh, with the uh, Lucas Oil Stadium after the smoke cleared and the state ended up being in control of that. David chaired the state authority. I was chairing the uh, Marion County uh, Cattle Improvement Board. And, and, I, and I really and that was a that was a breached birth and, and could have been a real problem. But because of David's stewardship and even demeanor and city first community first mentality that thing ended up being a really positive um, experience. And so I, I totally agree with you pretty much single-handedly got the Colts here, built the RCA dome, very humble. He wouldn't wear that on his sleeve, but I, I, Indianapolis is a much, much better place because of David Freck. Absolutely. Humble is the humble genius and a deliverer. He's just got the golden touch. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, our city, David may lead that parade in a way, but, but but you think about those kind of civic leaders who bridged government, you know, P.E. McAllister, Dave Frick, Ted Bohm, Bill Crawford, Jim Morris. I always felt like I was standing on their shoulders in, in a way and, and, and felt the uh, responsibility to try to be, you know, somewhere close to as good as stewards as those folks were. And I, and I think that's the secret sauce of Indianapolis that, that, that um, these, these civic, that, that there's, there's value and, 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 and responsibility with these civic leaders who bridge gaps that, that just a lot of other communities just don't have. And so um, uh, Dave is maybe the one of the quintessential examples of that. And there are so many other names we could mention, Bill Mays, and, and we would be here all day. Susan Brooks, yeah. the list goes yeah. on and on. Absolutely. Joe, Joe Slash. But it leads yeah. directly to my next question, which is the names that you just mentioned and some of the names that I've mentioned and some of the people who've come on the podcast, we've made this a point, a thread, for lack of a better term, that, and I remember P.E. McAllister saying this to me at lunch dozens of times. And he held your old job as president of the Capital Improvement Board. He said, politics never came up. Never one time would we have a political argument. Everybody who was involved in the room, who was part of the solution, part of the decision was like, how do we make this work for the city? 
So given your strong bipartisan reputation, how important has that been to Indianapolis's phenomenal growth over the last 50 years? And how important is it to you personally? First of all, I, I think it's absolutely right. It's, it's in some ways the key to everything. And one of the people that should be on that list that I neglected to mention is Pat Early, um, mm-hmm. who's part of that uh, group, you know, the father of um, Victory Field, um, Bankers Life Fieldhouse. And I mentioned him in particular because he'd been the eight-year leader of the Capital Improvement Board before I was. And sort of in that tradition you were describing, when Bart was elected, there was sort of an acknowledgement by people that, well, he needs to have his leadership on the Capital Improvement Board, which I never thought it'd be me. Bart asked me to do it, whatever. I, I did it. But, you know, we sat down with um, um, Pat and he facilitated that. So my first meeting, I get elected president. I say, Pat, will you be my vice president? He goes, yeah. You know, we worked through everything together. There were no secrets. It was completely transparent. It's exactly what you described. All the politics was left at the door. And we knew we'd have to pick that hat up on our way out to get stuff done. But when we were in there, it's like, what's good for the city? And it, it's, you know, it's just, uh, again, I think it's really the secret to Indianapolis. The, first of all, the people that step in that breach and they do it in a way that's, that's, it's not nonpartisan, it's bipartisan. People bring their strengths and spheres of influence to bear, but the decision-making is on a nonpartisan basis or bipartisan basis. We should also mention a longtime president of the Capital Improvement Board, Jim Dora Sr. Yeah, absolutely. Terrific yeah. leader it, it, in this city. You got to be careful not to start this list because you mentioned a thread. It's like the string on the sweater. <laughs> but, you know, there's there's a dozen that just come rolling off your tongue. And we could we could get another couple dozen without even breaking a sweat because we've been blessed with awesome leadership in this community. And it's quite frankly, Fred, to be candid with you, we're talking with Fred Glass on the Leaders and Legends podcast. One of the reasons I started this podcast, actually, you'll enjoy this story. I'll give you the cliff notes uh, that was suggested by Rachel Coverdale that I start a podcast as a way to promote my brand and promote my business and so on and so forth. Her husband is Tom Coverdale, former IU or former Indiana Mr. Basketball and point guard on IU's last uh, Final Four run. Uh, And the only reason I said I would do it is so I could, quite frankly, talk to folks like you. And I've been very lucky because these I grew up in Indianapolis. I was born six weeks after Senator after Richard Luger, excuse me, one mayor. I've lived here my whole life, except for the three years I was in the army. And it's amazing to talk to people and ask this question. And I've asked it of almost everybody. And I'll ask it of you. If I had told you on the day you graduated high school. Fred, guess what? We're going to have a professional football team and we're eventually going to host the Super Bowl and completely change what the Super Bowl means to the NFL and the country and Americans. You would have said. Yay. I mean, I uh, I would have been shocked. I, I believed in Indianapolis. You know, when I was I think it was I was I was in high school. And at that time, R.V. Welch. Um, who was a, you know prominent city leader, ran for mayor against Bill Hudnut, you know, lost. Um, but he had the wherewithal to secure an NFL franchise. And a lot of people thought we would get a new team through RV Welch because he had made that. And so I was f- friends with his knucklehead um, nephew, Bobby Clifford. I don't know if you remember, Bob was a city controller yes. and so forth. And unfortunately died of the same awful brain cancer that took Susan by. But um, he got me hooked up 
to drive limousines of NFL owners with, who RV Welch was whining and dining in Indianapolis. So I had like a little Greek fisherman's cap and, you know, a suit coat that was too big. And I'm driving these guys around. And, and um, you know, I believed, you know, I believed it was happening out, happened a whole different way and, 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 and all that. And I never even thought about the Super Bowl. So I can't say I thought about that, but, but I, I, I didn't think it was crazy. I was hoping that would happen. And I, and, and I, I could think of nothing cooler than that. I remember when they, 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 they came into town and Dave Frick, Bill Hudnut, uh, Bob Ursay, um, probably uh, walked onto the field, the RCA Dome, Hoosier Dome then. The place was packed at like two o'clock on a Tuesday. And I'm like, Dan Fouts is going to be right down there. I'm going to be in here and I'm going to be in the same building as Dan Fouts. That image just stuck in my head. And, uh, and, and, and I was thrilled. So, so I felt like a special connection with the NFL and, and with the Colts. And even though I was a Packers fan, I, I moved over to uh, the Colts side. You've been a sports fan, obviously your whole life. Uh, the capital improvement board, is a unique organization within local government. And it does all sorts of things, including own most of the stadiums and venues and places, the convention center. Um, But those things don't get done, as you mentioned just a few minutes ago, without people shedding their labels and working together. Do you have, and how important, let me ask this question two different ways. Who are some of your best Republican friends? I know one of them is Murray Clark. Um, who is a very unsung leader, a terrific person. His family has done tons for this city and state. And he's my former boss when he was chairman of the Indiana Republican party. But talk about some of your friends on the other side of the aisle and just how important it is to you personally, as it is to me to have friendships, good friendships with people whom you may not vote alike. Yeah, Robert, I I think it's, critically important and very enriching um, uh, uh, to uh, to have those friendships. I despair may be too strong, but not, not too far off about what the toxic toxicity of current political discourse is doing to those kind of uh, relationships. Um, but yeah, Murray's one of my closest friends, former law partners. We used to do a frickin' frack thing, um, Capital uh, Caucus. Capital Caucus. Uh, in law school, my best friend was Brian Bosma, you know, um, and and we've stayed you know close over the years. And um, Susan Brooks and I were um, were interns together at the old Bytabbert Cape Art Law Firm and close hmm. friends. And I was friends with her husband, David, you know, before that. And there's there's probably not a more partisan, you know, occasionally caustic person in town than David. Um, we, call, we, call him a, we call him a fighter. He's a fighter. He's a good guy to have on your team. You know I mean? That's like, I, so, um, so yeah, so, so I've, I've been the beneficiary of those uh, friendships and treasured those friendships and, and, and Democrat and Republican, you know, I used to say they were battlefield friendships when you're, we're on a campaign or in a, or in an office and you're in the foxhole sometimes with the incoming you're forging, you know, lifelong friendships. And I was the beneficiary of working with some great people in the governor's office and then, and then working with some really great people across the Island. And I got to say, Robert, not to, 
um, blow smoke up your skirt, as my father used to say. But but um, we're we're you know different ages. But but I, I I've always felt you're totally cut out of that cloth too, right? I mean, you're a partisan, as I'm a partisan of communications director for the state party or deputy chief of staff for Greg Ballard, probably his primary spokesperson, all that. But someone I always felt like we could reach across the aisle, we could talk about um, um, things and and get things done. I should add on my list, Bill Stephan. You know, he was exactly Goldsmith's chief of staff. When I was Bart's transition director, we were law school classmates and sort of reconnected during those challenging, that challenging transition that I think went more smoothly because he and I trusted each other as, as friends. And then because karma is a real thing, he chairs the search committee on the IUAD gig <laughs> and helps me get that job, you know? And, and, and it's, it's just a cool environment where, you know, Bill's a fairly high profile Republican and I'm a fairly high profile Democrat, but we've come together in a variety of ways um, that, that I think have been, you know, good, good outcomes. Well, thank you for your kind words. I, I chuckle that it's the benefit of an East side education in the sense that, you know, the East side was pretty union and then it became kind of Reagan Democratish in the, in the eighties. But, you know, my father was, basically right of Charlemagne and my mother was left of Khrushchev and you know maybe it's no surprise that they got married and divorced from each other twice I guess they just couldn't figure it out and you get exposed you know one of the best experiences of my entire life was being someone you know I'm going to say his name was being a student of Bill Bloomquist Mm -hmm. professor at IPUI who's incredibly brilliant and amazingly generous with his intellect and you know he's he's certainly more D than R certainly. Uh, but, but he's a thinker and he's a prober and he's a like, okay, you think you, you think you've got this argument down? Well, let's go to it. And then you realize five minutes later, you don't have a clue what you're talking about. And that's just so beneficial. And I remember when I started working for mayor Ballard in November of eight, I didn't start when the, I was at Shield Sexton with all your friends over there, right, Mikey right. Diltz and Brian Sullivan right. and others. Right. And uh, telling him that the difference between you, Greg Ballard, and Bart Peterson is negligible in many ways, that the Venn diagram is so incredibly fat in the middle and that Bart Peterson was a terrific mayor who had, you know, a rough stretch, political stretch the last six months of his second term and that we're going to benefit a lot from what he did and that people don't dislike Bart Peterson. Hell, he won in 2003 by 30 points over a really good guy named Greg Jordan. And that we're not, you know, it's crazy to throw everything out. Let's do it. Let's do what we want to do, but let's build on what he did as he built on Goldsmith and the list goes on and on. And I think that helps build the bipartisanship when you know that the other side, the other side has good ideas and has good people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, that's easier to pull off in a, in a, in a city. You know, um, and 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 shame on us if we don't take advantage of that at the municipal level. We also want to do I'm trying to put together a podcast on the career of Julia Carson, speaking of someone Mm -hmm. who left an impact and we'll get it done. It's just a matter of time. Those will be great stories. Be sure to have Bart on there. He's he's got great Julia stories. Well, it would almost turn into a panel if everybody Everybody who had a story about the congresswoman actually came on. Uh, right, right. In the last few minutes we have here, let's talk about IU. You decided to become, accept the gig, apply for the gig, and get it uh, to be athletic director. 
I've never experienced anything like that professionally. I'm, of course, I'm only 53. Maybe I will one day. But to be a a boss, a vice president at an institution where you had spent so much time as quote unquote a kid. Uh, what was it like strolling around campus, vice president Fred Glass, as opposed to you know freshman Fred Glass? Well, that would certainly be night and day and a whole a variety of reasons, but it, it's, it's interesting to describe it that way because um, my whole career up till then, I'd always been a staff guy and, and, I, and I really liked being a staff guy and I thought I was a really good staff guy. You know, I was Evan's staff guy, I was Bart's staff guy. And as a lawyer, you're really a staff guy. You know, it's not your company. You know, you're, you're, it's not your administration. You're advising someone else. And, and, and I liked that. Um, and I never aspired to be an office holder. Well, I did when I was a kid, but not when I was uh, older. So the allure of the IU job was to, to like be in charge of something. And, and even if it was making widgets, I was, you know, I was 49. It was a good time for me. I thought to do something else. And then the thing you were doing wasn't widgets. It was Bloomington, college, sports, kids. So I thought this was going to be awesome. And it really was awesome. But it was part of the allure was to be an executive and not be a staff guy. And then, like you were saying, going back down to Bloomington, you know, it was awesome. We got a condo down there, spent a lot of time down there. Um, I did get some good advice when um, when I was uh, pursuing the job. I, I called. Jack Swarbrick, who could be on that list that we were talking about um, earlier. And he would, had been a partner of mine at Baker Daniels, of course, a few months before I became the AD at IU, he became the AD at Notre Dame. And I said, hey, man, is this, a, is this a gig I want to do? And he goes, definitely. And I said, do you have any advice? He goes, tell me you want to be a vice president, because that helps get things done, which, hell, I didn't know. And the only reason I asked to be a vice president is because Jack told me. And so I asked to be a vice president. They said, okay. And that was really great advice because in a college environment, titles matter and being a vice president really helped me cut through a lot of stuff that I think otherwise would have been more challenging. We would love to have Mr. Swarbrick on the Leaders and Legends podcast. I may, I may send you a note to see if you can be helpful. Maybe you and Miles can, uh, Mark Miles can persuade him, but he's done an amazing job at Notre oh, Dame. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it leads right to my next question. Uh, and Swarbrick's done an amazing job, I think, at about everything that he's ever done. Yeah. But, you know, you're in a law firm and you're prominent here in Indianapolis and you're a, you're involved in a lot of big decisions and you're being interviewed by local media about these decisions and the things you need to do. You've got powerful, influential friends and relationships. And then six months later, you're on ESPN 15, 20 times a year. How much different is that? Is the scrutiny, is the limelight? I remember watching IU games and there you were, you know, watching the game or taking notes or talking to someone. Now it seems like it's just so much more magnified. And how did you handle that? And did you enjoy it? Um, you know, I, I really wasn't that high. Pro I, I didn't consider myself to be very high profile in the, in, in the city sort of before, I mean, with the Super Bowl thing, maybe by, by necessity. Um, but it was a different level at IU. Um, just the, the scrutiny and the, not only like ESPN, but, the, you know, there's probably like 12 people that make a living by blogging about IU sports and all the message boards and, and, um, you know, you know, 
people would talk about, would say something to my wife about what scarf she was wearing in the game. And, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, Archie Miller used to say, yeah, they, you know, they test about what kind of slushy I got at, you know, Speedway and stuff. It, it, the, the, the intent, the, the, the scrutiny is um, uh, fairly intense and, and, and sort of unavoidable, not, not the part of the job I liked uh, that, that much, but, you know, you know, you're a communications guy and I didn't know shit about what I was supposed to be doing uh, as a, as a non-traditional candidate, you know, suddenly plopped into the IU role. And I really relied back on my experience in public service because I think properly viewed being the AD at a major public research university is like public service. So I turned to things like transparency and big gigantic goals and articulate your priorities until everybody wants to throw up um, that, uh, that, that what you're about. And those, I think, stood me in good stead, that experience in public service. And part of that was, you know, communicating a consistent message. And my experience working for Bart and working for Evan, I think, you know, helped me in that regard. You made some comments uh, a few months ago, the early part of 2021, I believe, or maybe in December of 2020. Um, IU inexplicably was wronged with regard to the Big Ten and and the bowl season. Uh, tell us why you and you spoke out and you said basically, and I'm paraphrasing, so please correct me that that the powers that be do not want IU basketball, IU football, excuse me, to be powerful, to be successful because of the uh, schools around us, especially in the Big Ten, who come and poach our best players. And it was, a, I'm not going to say it was a shocking thing to read. I smiled big because because I know it came from a really good place for you. Why was it important to you to, to say that? Well, you know, the, the, part of the context was we had just come off this uh, thing where they had a rule that you had to play six games to be in the championship game. And they changed that so that Ohio State could represent the Eastern Division instead of IU, which I believe was 100% the right decision. You know, it was a pandemic rule. It wasn't like an 80-year rule. And, and, and Ohio State beat us on the field. And so they should have done that. But, but I, IU took a high road and didn't complain about that and accepted that as I thought they should have. But, but, but I sort of thought the conference kind of owed us one a little bit. And then the uh, College Football Playoff Committee doesn't put us in the New Year's Six. And then to add insult to injury, we don't we get passed over for the Citrus Bowl by Northwestern, and all this stuff's very hierarchical. And so it was really out of out of whack to have Northwestern jump over us. Um, and we were the first; it was the first year in the college football playoff era where two Big Ten teams hadn't made the playoffs. And I submit that if the second place team had wings on their helmets, or even Hawkeyes on their helmets. Mm-hmm or nothing on their helmets like Penn State, they would have made it. But because there was an interlocking IU on the helmet, good old IU sort of, you know, gets left out. Uh, in part, I think, because the powers that be, the power structure, the good old boy network had a vested interest in IU not being good at football. They, they liked it when they were an automatic, when we were an automatic W. They liked it when they could come in here and take our best players. They liked it when we weren't a player um, in national recruiting and so forth. And, and, and my successor couldn't say that, shouldn't say that. Tom Allen couldn't say that, shouldn't say that. But I was so, sort of uniquely positioned where I wasn't connected with IU, but I had a certain amount of credibility. And so I thought I needed to speak out, not to vet my spleen. It wasn't in a fit of peak. 
but it was, I thought, strategic, like this needs to be called out, you know, because I didn't want the conference and the college football playoff uh, group and the ADs to say, well, we can we can kind of screw Indiana and they're just not going to say anything about it. So I thought it was important to say, I think through unusual circumstances, I was in a position to do it. I, I felt like it was kind of my responsibility to say it. Any regrets? No. No. One other thing that you worked hard on, as I recall, uh, was to try to reconcile Coach Bobby Knight with the university. Um, He has said some very tough things about uh, the former leadership um, and the university and, quote, those people, close quote. Why was that so important to you? And what did you think when you saw Coach stroll across the court at Assembly Hall during last year's game against Purdue? Yeah, so my my biggest uh, um, goal was to try to remove impediments that would keep him from coming back. Um, I never want to put pressure on him or be perceived as putting pressure on him because I thought that would be counterproductive. But we, we put him in the Hall of Fame. We did a variety of things, I think, to kind of lower the temperature and hopefully create an environment where he felt comfortable coming back, recognizing all of his contributions to Indiana basketball, which are undeniable. You know, not really focusing on the other things because as, a, as an athletic director, those weren't really my focus. My focus was what he had done um, for basketball. Um, and... Robert, we had paid a huge price as Indiana basketball to be disconnected from our patriarch. Every other, we like to think of ourselves as a historic blue blood program. All the other historic blue blood programs had their guy. Dean Dome at North Carolina, you know, Krzyzewski's still at Duke, Rupp Arena, Wizard of Westwood, you know, even Izzo and, and um, um, Judd Heathcote at Michigan State. And we were denied that. And, and I think it was really more debilitating to IU basketball and people even recognized to have our former players unsure of whether they could come back without alienating their coach. And so I thought it was really important to try to get IU basketball where I wanted it to be, to try to have that rift uh, healed. But I also knew it would probably only come from the former players. So, again, we talked about Randy Whitman. I won't go into all the details, but Randy Whitman and, and – um, Quinn Buckner really drove Buckner, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got so caught up in the details of it that I, I sort of lost the cosmic part of it. And you asked about how I felt when we walked across the court. Then it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was sitting next to Mark Cuban, my classmate. Um, and he said, you did it, man. And I, and, and, um, and first I was like, well, don't jinx it. Cause he's not done yet. And he, <laughs> he, then he started acting crazy. Cause I see what you mean. But um the reaction of the crowd and the reaction of players. I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now thinking about it because it was in a moment, everything changed. And that happens very rarely in the world. It happens very rarely in sports, but in a moment, everything changed. Family was back together again. And I was so glad for coach Knight that he could enjoy those accolades. Um, and, um, and then I was so happy for Hoosier nation. And I'm really happy for IU basketball because I think it helped set the table for us getting to where we want to be. It's hard to explain to people who weren't alive in the 70s, 80s, early 90s that Bob Knight was the state. 
unless you lived in West Lafayette, perhaps. But <laughs> but his three national championships, 11 Big Ten championships, including his most underrated achievement, he won 36 games in a row in the Big Ten, 75-76. Olympic gold medal, all the things that happened. To have that alienation, you made a great point. It brought the family back together and made IU able to embrace those the Blue Buds like the Blue Bloods did, excuse me. But on the other side of Coach Knight from our from our friend Quinn Buckner was Mike Woodson. And he ended up staying, he ended up kind of moving into Assembly Hall after uh, the end of the year. Give us just very quickly before we move on, your thoughts on, on Coach Mike Woodson. Yeah, I'm all in with uh, Coach Woodson. I, we exchanged uh, texts after he was uh, named. Um, you know, my history with him goes back to Broad Ripple. I, I, I uh, in addition to rebuff, I should have note, noted that I also attended Broad Ripple High School. I went there for uh, driver's ed in the summer, and you had to take another class. So I took driver's ed and library experience. Um, and I used to go to uh, the games at that little cracker box gym and watch Mike Woodson play, you know, because we're roughly contemporaries. So when I was in high school, I'd go to games there all the time and, uh, you know, got to know Coach Woodson um, while I was, uh, was athletic director. and. And so, you know, um, have great confidence, Scott Dolson, his judgment and what he's done so far. I think it's very encouraging. So I'm all in and, and uh, looking forward to supporting him and the program going forward. You going to wear your candy stripes? Who, me? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. I, as you know, Robert, I am very uh, much uh, unafraid to make myself look like a goof. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll, uh, I'll be looking like I was looking like a goof as AD. I'll look like a goof as a regular fan. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the uh, our our guests the same five questions. Fred Glass, are you ready? I hope so. And you won't be a goof, I promise. What was your first uh, job? You can't fix that. <laughs> first job, uh, Indianapolis Star Paperboy. Number two, what was your first concert? Um, okay, this is the part where I, I'm probably going to breach the no goof uh, uh, rule. So um, my best friend, Jimmy Galloway, and I uh, called in to WIFE. We were the 13th caller, and I won tickets to see Sha Na Na at the convention center. So when I was about eighth grade, I saw Sha Na Na at the convention center. And that was a good show, too, by the way. Bowser? Bowser, my, he was my guy. <laughs> <laughs> I only say this. I've said this a few times in other podcasts. I only say it because of the IU connection. Uh, Greg Ballard graduated from IU in 1978. And his first concert was Sly and the Family Stone in Bloomington. That's strong. That's, that's a good one. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Um. All right. First of all, I'm going to shamelessly plug my upcoming book. I have a book coming out in November by IU Press called Making Your Own Luck from a Skid Row Bar to Rebuilding IU Athletics. My dad owned a Skid Row Bar. Um, but since that's not available yet, I won't I won't uh, say that, but I'm going to use that as a way to sneak that in. Um, I was talking about the, the impact of the Jesuits on me. There's a book by uh, Father Jim Martin. Uh, who's a well-known Jesuit commentator. It's called The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. And, and I know that sounds like a, a little bit of a silly title, but it's just, I think it's a very impactful book about the history of the Jesuits and, and the way of proceeding 
detachment, decision-making, and whether you're a religious person or not, that is a great book to read, The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? How about Woodstock? Does that count? But Jimi Hendrix makes it count. Hey, man, can you imagine being there? Like, first of all, it's a long event. It's not like one thing, like three days and then all that music. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with Woodstock. That's unique. We've not had that one before. Good for you. <laughs> Number five, last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours completely off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Um, I, I think I might, I think I do Pope Francis, you know, Jesuit, fascinating life. Um, you get to meet the Pope. I'll go, I'll go with Pope Francis. Terrific answers. You have been listening to leaders and legends, a podcast presented by veteran strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of central Indiana, Garmond construction leaders and legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been former Indiana University Vice President and Athletic Director, former Chief of Staff to Governor Evan Bayh, and former President of the Capital Improvement Board and proud member of the Brebuff Mafia, Mr. Fred Glass. Fred, thank you for your time. Robert, thanks so much for having me on. I'm really flattered and really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.